Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on the smart speaker as well. Coming up, Prince Harry's on his way back to Los Angeles after a whistle-stop tour to see the King, who of course has cancer. The Duke of Sussex failed to meet his brother, Prince William, who carried out royal duties this evening with A-lister Tom Cruise. The London Mayor comes under fire as adverts for Sadiq Khan's ULES expansion made misleading claims about pollution levels across the city. And the surviving line of HS2 is offering very poor value for money after the Prime Minister scrapped the northern leg. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got it all for you tonight. We've got the tale of two royal brothers closing another door on their worsening relationship. Is it now beyond repair? We've got more trouble for Gary Lineker and the BBC, and we've got a proper look at what on earth Sir Keir Starmer's going to do when somebody actually hands him the keys to number 10 Downing Street. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Turn it up to regular eight. Move over, Harry. When it comes to celebrity pals, William has just landed one of the biggest stars on the planet tonight in a move sure to rub salt into the wounds of his bitter brother. Prince William has only gone and bagged Tom Cruise as a surprise celebrity guest for the London Air Ambulance charity gala he spoke at this evening. Meanwhile, the Duke of Sussex has jetted out of the UK after his ever-so-brief reunion with his father, King Charles. In his whistle-stop visit, Harry didn't even stay the night in any royal residence or catch up with his older brother. But this is no real surprise, as Harry's made no bones about the rift between him and old Willie. For starters, there's the very fact Harry called his memoir Spare, immortalising his title as the surplus son of a monarch who already had an heir. And in that book, he famously told of a fight with his big bro. He grabbed me by the collar, ripping my necklace, and he knocked me to the floor. I landed on the dog's bowl, which cracked under my back, the pieces cutting into me. But Willie really went for the juggler when he swung at Harry's wife just a year after their wedding. Meg's difficult, he said. Oh, really? She's rude. She's abrasive. She's alienated half the staff. Talk TV's correspondent, Oliver Whitfield Mircic, is outside that charity gala right now. Oliver, very good evening to you. Good evening, Mike. So, we had a star turn from Tom Cruise. We had uh, Prince William talking about uh, how grateful he was to the, uh, uh, the people who had sent all their good wishes to his father and to his wife, both of whom have been uh, in the wars over medical issues. Um, tell us about it. Yeah, so the prince is actually still inside. We had expected him to have leave, left within the past half hour, but he's having such a good time, he stayed in there with his Hollywood star pal, Tom Cruise. Now, in that speech, he addressed the health concerns, not only of the king, but also of his wife, and said that he appreciated all of the kind words that he had received. And then, in a light-hearted moment, he had said, it's fair to say that the past few weeks have had a rather medical focus. So I thought I'd come to an air ambulance function 
to get away from it all. It's not just any old air ambulance function. The Prince has been the patron of the London Air Ambulance Charity since 2020. Of course, he himself used to be an air ambulance pilot and the charity here is hoping to raise £15 million for two new choppers for the capital. Now, this, of course, comes as the Prince is expected to take on more roles in the future with King Charles's cancer diagnosis, meaning that the monarch has got to step back from public duties while he undergoes treatment for that form of cancer that he has been diagnosed with. But it leaves a lot of pressure on Prince William because not only does he have to step into the breach and take over some of those public duties, he's also got to take care of his wife, the Princess of Wales, because she is recuperating from that abdominal surgery and he's also got to help take care of the children. It's been a busy day for the Prince as well. Earlier on, he had an investiture at Windsor Castle where he was handing out gongs, including to the top goal scorer for the Lionesses, Ellen White. And then it can't be unnoticed that he didn't see his brother, Prince Harry, who was only in the country for 26 hours, having made a transatlantic flight 5,000 miles from Los Angeles yesterday, arriving in to London's Heathrow Airport, then zooming over to Clarence House so that he could see his father, King Charles. There for half an hour, a very, very brief meeting, and it's understood that the King and Queen held up their helicopter journey to Sandringham so that they could meet with Prince Harry. And then Harry, believed to have stayed the night in a London hotel, and then earlier this afternoon, heading back to Heathrow Airport onto a flight and now out of our airspace. So... A busy day it has been, and one final bit of royal news we've had today from the Prime Minister's office this time. The engagements, the uh, phone calls that take place between the King and the Prime Minister will still be going ahead, and this time it will be a phone call instead of an in-person audience as the King focuses on his health. Oliver, thanks very much indeed. Oliver Whitfield, Mirchich, they're reporting into us from uh, central London, uh, where the event is still going on. One of the things that William supposedly said uh, was about Tom Cruise. He said, I should also take this opportunity to give a mention to my, our, fellow pilot, Tom Cruise, which I think in the wake of the old uh, Legends of Aviation thing over in America last week uh, will probably irk Harry even more. With me now in the studio is Royal Biographer Hugo Vickers. Hugo, welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Um, Interesting few days it's been, and um, what have you made of it all? Well, it certainly has uh, taken everybody by surprise mm. because um, we had no indication that there was going to be the announcement about the king having cancer. Right, and um, that I think took everybody um, put everybody into shock. Yeah, I think the reaction. It was a shock, wasn't it? It was a great shock, and yeah. I think I think the sort of one 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 interesting thing that came out of it was the great warmth and affection for the king. Yes. It hasn't always been like that, as you know, with him. But right. I mean, I think people were genuinely sorry to hear this news. Yes. Because in a way, he's just really getting into his stride mm. as a head of state. And I think that um, he's found it easier being a head of state to talk to people like President Macron, yeah. uh, President Biden or whoever, um, because sort of he has these one-to-one -one talks. Yes. Whereas when he was Prince of Wales, they kind of didn't quite... You know, they thought of him mm. as sort of interfering, and now they don't. And it's obviously, for him, an incredibly tough act to follow because one of the things, I suppose, for all of us is that we've been so used to just having the late Queen being in charge. I mean, certainly all of my life, um, and I'm presuming probably all of yours as well, and suddenly you've got 
a new guy in town who is not really new, but you've known him all your life and suddenly he's supposed to take over and he's supposed... And I think he's done a pretty good job, actually. Well, I think really, really from the start, that mm. first address that he gave the night after the Queen died mm. was incredibly reassuring. Yes. And um, he was looking out um, in a way he was comforting us at a time when we might have been comforting him. Yes. Uh, because in the past, sometimes, like when the Queen Mother died, for example, it was all sort of, what am I going to do now? Mm. I've lost my greatest ally. Yeah. This time it was tremendously focused on everybody else. It right. was a brilliant um, address. Yes. And, and the warmth of the reception that he got when he walked into the, you know, outside Buckingham Palace, mm. you could see it. Right. Um, and in fact, so the transference of affection was very quick mm. um, and very impressive, I think. Yes, I think so. And of course, William speaking tonight for the first time really since the announcement about the cancer, um, showing himself also to be very ready to take the reins of power if it's necessary for him to do so. Uh, you wrote an interesting piece, I think, in the Mail back in December about how it's nonsense to suggest that, that Charles is going to be a caretaker king, and I think you're right uh, to say that. Obviously, you know, we hope that he's going to be fine and we hope that the cancer has is, is, is been caught very early and, and he may well have quite a long reign. Um, but it must, be, it, it must be a strange situation for them both at the moment. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the problems of... Um, historically for a Prince of Wales, any Prince of mm. Wales in history, is that he never knows when he's going to be called upon to take the throne. Yes. It's a heart, he's a heartbeat away. Right. Um, um, you know, and so that could happen at any point. And the, for the king, I think it's disappointing because, you know, it's obviously going to curb his activities. Mm. I mean, we don't know whether he'll be up to doing overseas tours yeah. or riding at the Trooping the Colour and all that sort of things that he does. But it's good news that he's able to continue behind the scenes. And if you think back to lockdown, I thought it was very reassuring when we used to see the Queen quite yeah. often. Yes. Uh, we didn't actually see her in person, but we knew she was all right. Yes. So we have to... Well, she made uh, that great speech, didn't she? We shall meet again. And that was brilliant. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. I mean... Uh, That's what she was fantastic at, though, wasn't it? And, and, and if you remember, she threw in a sort of wonderful line, like when she'd spoken from Windsor Castle 80 years before. Yes. Because in the war, she had made that other speech. Right. Right, incredible stuff. Yes. I mean, tonight's um, events as well, I think, show Prince William is, is kind of, you know, just getting on with business. Harry has become, to some extent, a bit of a, a non-event, really, a bit sort of irrelevant. We'll maybe get on to him in a minute. But Tom Cruise showing up um, will probably show the rest of the world as well that the royal family is still very much at the, the sort of the heated centre of everything. Well, I mean, you talk about the amount of money they're going to raise mm. by his presence tonight. Yeah. And, and that, of course, is where the royal family uh, perform one of their many useful roles. Yeah. And the, the only thing which is rather tricky for them at the moment is that they've invented this term, the working royals, mm. but of the working royals, not very many of them are working at yes. the moment. And we can see them there. I mean, it's a great look for, for William. I can't imagine Harry and Meghan being particularly happy with that. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, um, here we have a royal family that I think a lot of people weren't really aware was quite a busy family in terms of all the things that they do. Incredibly. It's only really now that because they've got so they've become so debilitated because of Harry, because of Andrew, because of now the fact that uh, that Kate Catherine isn't able to do anything until after Easter, the fact that the King Charles now isn't able to do anything. I mean, it's really put it into sort of stock. Um, sort of contact, well, the contrast. Person should, the person you should listen to on every possible available opportunity is Princess Anne. Mm. And she was asked quite recently about the slimmed-down monarchy. Yeah. And she said, it doesn't look very good from where I'm standing. Right. And she can say that sort of she thing. She can say that sort of thing. In fact, funnily enough, a friend of mine got an MBE and when he came down, it was when the Queen was still alive, but he wasn't sure if she was well enough to do it. And it was Princess Anne that presented it to him in, uh, in Windsor. And he was absolutely thrilled and he said she was brilliant, knew everything about him even though he was about number 250 traipsing into the room, you know, because they have this incredible 
ability. But let's talk a little bit about the Harry visitation because we heard from our reporter there, Oliver, um, that he had about half an hour meeting with the King and Camilla. I mean, are we sure that Camilla was there? We aren't sure about anything, mm. but we know that he went to see his father. And yeah. actually, I think, full credit to him, he did come over, albeit very briefly, to support his father at the coronation. He, yeah. made, he showed his face. Right. That was good. He didn't stay very long. Right. And they didn't uh, really speak at that, I understand. Well, we, uh, I'm not so sure. And, but we didn't, obviously, they didn't have much chance to speak because right. he was being Well, he crowned. wasn't around for long, was no, he? No, he wasn't around for long, but yeah. he did go back to Buckingham Palace after, yeah. the, after the coronation, mm. so he, he may well have had a short chat with him. But at any rate, this time, he made the effort to come over. And, you know, when you get the news that your father is ill, mm. um, you know, full, full marks to him for coming over and seeing him. And if, as we hope, the conversation was, you know, I've come to see you, mm. I hope you're going to be all right, that would have been an enormous tonic for the king, yeah. I think. Yes, if that's indeed what happened. If but it that's does what seem happened. unusual, I think, because I think a lot of us thought, well, if he's made the effort to come, then maybe he'll spend some time. It won't just be a flying visit. But instead of which, I mean, the, the way it looks is that they made some time for him, but they literally kind of kept the helicopter blades going on the grass at, the, at Buckingham Palace as they were having a meeting. Um, didn't invite him back to Sandringham, didn't invite him to stay at one of the royal residences, and instead he ended up in a hotel. I mean, it doesn't sound as though... Well, we don't know if they didn't invite him, but he yeah. may have already made his own arrangements, to be honest. But I still think it was a good thing that he came. And he has engagements in Canada, I think, with mm. the Invictus Games. Yes, question. I think so, yeah. So that was why he, if he didn't come now, he wouldn't have been able to come for perhaps 10 days or so. Right. So um, I think it was. I, I think it's good that he came. Right. And I so are you he, one of those that thinks this is a good sign? Then? Well, listen, there's a lot of talk about whether there's a possibility of reconciliations. Mm. There's always a possibility of reconciliation if both sides are prepared to engage in yes. it. So this surely is a step. Mm. I'm not saying it's more than that. Right, because the William angle, of course, would suggest that it isn't really a step because William didn't find time to see him when he probably could have done if he wanted to. He probably could have done, um, but that perhaps wasn't part of the agenda. I mean, mm. I think that the, the relationship between William and Harry is, of course, bad. Yes. Whereas the king has been brilliant because he's never... He's, he's kept the door wide open for Prince Harry. He has. He's never... He's never... He's never uh, responded to any of the jives that have mm. come from California. Yeah. And so the door was wide open and Prince Harry came through the door. Yes. That's all we can say, really. Possibly so. I mean, but Harry's also said that, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's not really masked his dislike for Camilla, the Queen. He's also said at one time, I think, during the Oprah Winfrey interview, that his father doesn't take his calls. You know, he's complained about his brother his bullying brother him. His brother took his call this time. Well, he did, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how much work do you think had to go through for that to work out? Was there, would there have been intermediaries? Would there have been people that he would have approached first? No, I think, as I said before, the, the, the fact that the door was wide open was that it was just re required him to pick up the telephone. Clearly, the king had called him, we know that, to tell him personally about his illness. Um, you read out some interesting choice statements from the book Spare. Yes. We must remember that that book was ghost-written. Mm. Uh, by a very clever man called J.R. Moringa. Yes. And um, J.R. Moringa himself um, had a very bad relationship with his father. And he described in his uh, book, The Tender Bar, a time when he was knocked over in mm. a bar. And as he fell, he thought about his childhood. He yes. remembered this. I don't know, Mike, if you've been knocked... I luckily haven't been knocked over <laughs> in a bar, but I don't know if one has much time to have I haven't, those actually, no, funny no, well, no, well, we're lucky. A lot but, you know, of, yeah. you're more worried... I personally think I would be more worried about whether I was going to hit my head or whatever yes. than have all these thoughts. So I think you can take a lot of what was written in spare mm. with a pinch of salt. Well, 
Maybe that's what Harry should have done and thought yes. about taking some of it out. He but should. Hugo, very good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. I'm sure we'll be talking again because I think the story has many, many more uh, chapters to run. Uh, just before we go, though, we've got an exclusive first look at the front page of The Sun tomorrow morning. Another great Sun headline. Prince back to work as Harry jets off. Top Sun. And there it is. Uh, Tom Cruise uh, and the heir to the throne. Prince William, uh, the, uh, the Prince of Wales, of course. Fighting the good fight is what we do here. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. After the break, we're going to look at Rishi Sunak faffing over general election dates and asking why the least popular politician, Liz Truss, thought she could start a new popular political movement. That and much, much more. Stay where you are. Welcome back. You're watching the one and only Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it was meant to be a run-of-the-mill Prime Minister's questions, opening with gags about the state of NHS dentistry and the Prime Minister's newfound love of betting. But Rishi Sunak upped the ante when he chose to make a trans joke in his defence, highlighting Starmer's penchant for serious public policy U-turns. Have a look. Defining a woman. Although, although in fairness, that was only 99% of a U-turn. The list goes on, but the theme is the same, Mr Speaker. It's empty words, broken promises and absolutely no plan. Of all, of all the work, of all the weeks to say that, when Brianna's mother is in this chamber, shame, parading as a man of integrity, when he's got absolutely no responsibility. Absolutely. Oh, dear. Uh, is this really an indefensible moment for the Prime Minister, or is all fair in love, war and politics? I'm now joined by my panel. Welcome to journalist Eve Torfik, columnist for Spikes Online, Ella Whelan, and the writer and commentator Candice Holdsworth. Very good evening to all of you. I mean, I've never seen, I don't think, Keir Starmer being quite so faux-outraged as that, with this whole kind of, you know... Oh, my God, you've just said the worst thing that anybody's ever said in the House of Commons, in the whole history of the world, for shame. I mean, really? Was it that bad? Um, you know, Mike, I, I, I think you're right. I've never seen so much emotion from, yeah. from him before. First time ever, right? At all, so much personality and charisma, to be quite honest. Yeah. I think he should get outraged more often. I Maybe think he, he might an win Oscar an election, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think if... It turns out she wasn't actually in the chamber, which was the original report. Mm -hmm. She had been in the House of Commons, I think, this week, and she might have been in another part of the area. And I, I'd suggest it was clumsy of Rishi Sunak. He should have known that that was probably not the greatest time to do it. But, mm. I mean, the outrage that has since sort of flown from it, flowed from it, is just ridiculous, isn't it? It's ridiculous, and it's a little bit worrying because, um, you know, Rishi Sunak will have been brief that Brianna Jai's mother, Esther Jai, was going to be yeah. in the chamber. He should have, you know... He does these set-piece... Mm. Oh, they both do these set-piece yeah. speeches, and it's not authentic, and, you know, it's just the kind of ridiculous performance that goes on in PMQs is cringy. It was cringy. But you, we have to be able to talk about women, men, yeah. gender, right. and all the rest of it, just no matter who's in the chamber. Right. Um, and that this is a serious political issue that is one a matter of several pieces of legislation at the moment, and at the heart of some quite serious political battles in the run-up to an election. We need to talk about mm. this. If you look at social media tonight, it's basically full of people saying, how dare anyone ever speak about anything to right. do with trans or women's right. issues? And that... that 
I don't care about Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, you know, going at it at PMQs. What I do care about is our ability to talk mm. about this issue. Well, I was watching mm. Piers Morgan just before the show and his panel were having a debate about how, how dare you say that, you know, all women have to, you know, can't have a penis, you know. And you're kind of going, oh, are we living in the real world here? You know, is this a kind of denial of reality? Mm. And I think Keir Starmer, that is a point of weakness for him. I mean, that is something that he often doesn't want to be straight about. He's right. often changed. He, it's what he does. He shapeshifts on issues. Right. And now, you know, that Rishi Sunak made that joke and he's found some way to dodge it again mm. and sort of push it back onto Rishi Sunak so he doesn't have to talk right. about it. Right. I mean, he doesn't say... Well, actually, of course, 1% of women, you know, do have a penis. He doesn't actually... There is no trans joke. I mean, we even we called it a trans joke. There was no trans joke, really. It was simply a statement of fact. And, in fact, Rishi Sunak, for quite a, quite a long time, until relatively recently, didn't know what a woman was either. Well, in fact, exactly. that was the one question you asked every MP, well, and they didn't know the answer. I feel this is... This outrage, um, it's almost faux outrage. And I totally. think it's part of our societal fabric now. Mm. It's how people behave online, and next day there'll be a new moral outrage for anybody yeah. to get upset about. And I think the trans issue is a particularly provocative one, and I think that's one to get easily outraged yeah. by. And it shows you on the right side of the liberal fence, as it were, which Keir Starmer wants. Yeah. It suits his agenda. Well, Carol Vorderman has outdone herself this week because she was calling for R Rishi to resign as a result of this uh, trans joke today. <laughs> Only yesterday she was calling for him to resign for making a bet with Piers Morgan. So she's asking him to resign twice and it's only Wednesday. I know. I mean, what are they doing? <laughs> I, I mean, why are they getting so worked up about it all? There's an election coming. He's probably going to lose it. You know, I can't wait for all these kind of, you know, Labour-supporting celebrities uh, to watch it all go horribly wrong under a different government. Well, this is the mess of the world of politics we're in, which is that, I mean, in relation to the sort of women's rights trans issue... Nobody sitting in that chamber has a leg to stand on because the Conservatives brought in the self-ID stuff yeah. and have, have made... They, they were the origins of pushing all of this under Theresa May mm. and trying to undo the sort of nasty party image by using the yeah. trans issue. Labour Party has just been uh, uh, imbecilic yeah. by not being able to say what is fact, mm. like the sky is blue and a woman is a woman. Yeah. Um, but so it's, it's like I feel like a plague on all their houses and I think we shouldn't underestimate what that sort of, not the trans issue, but the issue of politicians being incapable mm. of telling the truth and yes. speaking plainly. Right. I think that is going to be a deciding factor for people whenever we get this election. Well, I think year. that's the thing. And I mean, we're now being told, this year. we reported it last night, that it might be October rather than November. Mm. Yeah. Um, which is nearer, I suppose, putting us out of our misery one month earlier than uh, than we would have been been put out of our misery. But, but yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree, because we had, I think it was last week, we had two different instances of, of politicians being unable to actually say what was going on. We had James Cleverly in front of a Home Affairs Select Committee uh, saying that oh, the, the backlog <laughs> wasn't really a backlog, it was more of a queue. And you're kind of going, sorry, what are we in some kind of Monty Python world here where we're just <laughs> making up words and yeah. giving them to a piece of, of, of a sentence? It's ridiculous. Well, our government does feel fairly farcical. It does feel it does. like we're watching the worst carry-on film. Yeah. You know, and every time made. you think it can't get any worse, it kind of does. Yes, and no one feels sort of like they know exactly who they're going to vote for and why. Everyone's thinking, oh, who am I going to vote for at the election and really believe in that, yeah. you know, and feel confident about that choice. It almost feels like you'll be voting because, OK, well, I guess it's better than the other guy. It's, you know, the least worst option. Yeah. No one feels properly represented now, I don't think. I don't think so. And, I mean, Liz Truss yesterday, and again, we talked about this uh, to some extent on the show last night, you know, the pop-con version of the Conservatives. It kind of just went like a flat piece of uh, 
mm. uh, I don't know, popping a cork that didn't have any noise to it. Yes. I think it's because, uh, and Liz Truss is a particular example of this, and Rishi Sunak as well, is that they're, you know, in the Conservative Party, almost all of them are careerist politicians. Mm. You can feel that they are not in it for any kind of ideological or substantial desire to engineer or change the country. They don't even have sort of politics with a capital yeah. P. I mean, as much as I like the idea of growth, Liz Truss's whole execution of that idea showed she didn't really believe in it. She didn't really know what it was about. Well, she can't um, grow her own popularity. Well, I think it's a slight setback for the growth but, argument. But you just know that they're all... It's, it's becoming prime minister or becoming a politician is a step on their route to the after-dinner speaking gigs. It's just, it all feels incredibly cynical. Yeah. And that means it just can't... Well, it's a problem because you want to have... I'm not a Conservative voter, I'm not a Labour voter, but you want to have people who have substantial views and can yeah. put them forward properly in order for democracy to function. And you want a reason to vote for people, don't you? I will say, though, in Liz Truss's defence, she is my um, local MP. OK. She remains popular in our area. Okay. Now, um, you know, she, she does engage with local business mm. people. She does engage with, you know, local issues. And she is actually personally sorting out the dental issues. Is she? Is obviously a nationwide problem. Funnily enough, I was going to come up um, with So that, that's filling up her mailbox and she's helping kids get dental appointments. Now, whether that is for PR or whatever device, political device yeah. that is for a career politician, as you say... Um, but her popularity remains okay. firm, and I I can't foresee the the area becoming red or green. No, I, I mean I don't have a problem with politicians doing things for PR purposes as long as they're actually doing things for the local community. Yeah, they are exactly. genuinely doing. Exactly. It. I mean the dental situation is ghastly, isn't it? Um, and again, I mean we had uh, figures I think this week that as many as a third of people uh, haven't seen um, a dentist something like for for. Uh, for two years yeah, um, in various parts of the country. Disgusting. In other parts of the country, it's like 60% of people that haven't seen a dentist. Because they just can't get one. I think as it becomes more and more dysfunctional, people are going to just have to start using preventative measures at home and start using all the tech that you can buy, yeah. like a good electric toothbrush, all the flossing things. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the only well, way. Well, I know people have been taking yeah. out their own teeth. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know. that's it. I interviewed a woman, sorry, I interviewed a woman a few weeks ago who is in her late 20s, mm. And she has no teeth. She has two good teeth wow. left. This is a woman in her late 20s. Imagine thing. how she feels. Yeah. She's been begging to get a dental appointment. Right. She's appealed to politicians. But presumably everything. that's because she doesn't know how to clean her own teeth, though. Well, then there's that it? argument as well. But then, you know, everybody should be able to afford dental care. What if she has a hereditary condition yeah, or a gum weakness? You don't know that. You can't judge people's level of care on that Yeah, but I mean, because if you've lost all your teeth in your 20s... There are groups pretty good on Facebook... not looking after them very there, well. There is a chance, but there are thousands of people on Facebook in these groups, toothless in Suffolk, toothless in Norfolk, toothless in London. Yeah. And I think that does show the curvature of the graph, you know, how many people are getting adequate dental care in this wow. country. I have to look that, that up. That sounds... Yeah, please do. There is something... Saturday night. There's something particularly spiteful <laughs> about the dentistry thing, because... Yeah. I, you know, been since I was a kid or whatever in the same dentist. And I, when I got pregnant a few years ago, I rang them and said, right, free, yeah. you get free stuff. Yeah. Your right. teeth might fall out when you're pregnant, apparently. So I was like, better get them checked. I'd been kicked off the register because I yeah. hadn't come she hadn't gone there, yeah. And there's this, I mean, what am I meant to be doing going every six months when there's nothing right. wrong? Most of us go to the dentist when we get a yeah. pain. Yeah, and you still have to pay, pay as well. It's not, free. it's not actually free. Yeah, yeah so, th but it, th it's a bit, it's sort of symptomatic of what's going on in the mm. NHS, which is, if you don't, if you don't act like the perfect model yeah. sort of patient and say yes, please and thank you and grovel, right. then you get kicked out. Yeah, this, you know, as much as I think it is 
there's a problem with dentists at the moment. They're overworked, blah, 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 all the rest of it. I get all of that. There is also a sort of a level of, I almost want to say greediness going mm. on, but in the unwillingness to take on yeah. NHS patients. Yes. That you cannot get an NHS dentist appointment mm. in North or East London no. at the no. moment. No, like all things, in, like, like all things it, is, yeah. it is not straightforward. But we'll talk about it some more because we'll come back to you guys later on in the show. Uh, at full throttle, this is the turbocharged Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up next, the Mayor of London's been caught red-handed again, lying about you, Les, and why petrolhead Rowan Atkinson is the new scapegoat for the green do-gooders. Do not move. Welcome back. We're putting boots to asses here at the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Well, we'd suspected it. There'd been reports, but now it is, of course, official. Sadiq Khan has been cooking up the figures on air pollution to give credence to his ULES empire. Again, after news last year about Sadiq's interference in pollution research, the Advertising Standards Authority has now pulled him up over misleading the public with air pollution exaggerations. Who could have guessed it? Joining me in the studio is a man taking the fight to Sadiq Khan, the founder of Fair Fuel UK, London mayoral candidate, of course, uh, the one and only Mr Howard Cox. Howard, good to see you. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. I mean, how many more times is this guy going to get away with just making stuff up? Well, I'm much stronger. We're talking about, some people say, Porky. He's a pathological liar. Yeah. He's absolutely... I don't know how he's got away with it and how... Um, and this is serious. You know, his boss, Sakir Starmer, has allowed him to get away with it. Yeah. You know, he's, he actually's elected official and, in my opinion, he's, he's fraudulent claims. Yeah. He's basing policy on that. Right. All on this emotion, all to get what he wants, this green sort of virtual mm. signalling agenda adopted. And the worst thing about it is costing, an and well, it's costing drivers a fortune. Yeah, it's taking an awful lot of money out of the pockets yeah. of ordinary Londoners who he claims that he's saving their lives while he's ripping them off. Because we know for a fact that the poor are the people who are suffering the most here, the people who live in areas where there isn't much public transport, Absolutely. particularly in the expanded area, the, the, you know, the extension, the ULES extension zone, where people need to drive an older car because they can't afford to buy a new one, where they're paying the price of having to just go down to the shops. I mean, in this particular case, just tell us what he was doing. Because he was effectively comparing air quality from before the ULEZ zone and after the ULEZ zone, except he wasn't, right? Well, it wasn't. It's Again, it's one of these things called a, a modelling process. Mm. There's three things he's been picked up on. One mm. of them is that it's more polluting sitting inside your car. Right. He's also saying that it, was more, it is more polluting outside Greater London to justify yeah. the fact the extension. And the other one, of course, is the famous one, the NOx has been halved. Right. The nitrogen dioxide, mm. the, the one of the gaseous pollutants. All three is tosh, all three are lies, yeah. and he based policy on that. Yes. And don't forget, he also manipulated public consultations. He's also lied about mm. the, the 4,000 deaths. It's one person that's right. died in the last 10 years. Yes. But he's saying there are 4,000 deaths every year. Right. Uh, and, it's uh, unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know how he's got away with it. And I see this week he also was encouraged by his socialist friend, Ms Hidalgo, over in Paris this week, <laughs> uh, who have put in these ridiculous parking charges so that if you're actually parking a big SUV-type car, you're going to be paying something like €200 Euros just to park it on the street in Paris. Ridiculous. They already do it, I know, in some places like yeah. Bath, I think they do it as well. But the thing is, you've been exposing this guy for ages. But I think he actually says... Uh, in these claims that the most polluted place in London is inside your car, when clearly it's down the tube station, isn't it? Well, you, well said. As you know, I've been down there with my yeah. my air quality testing mm. meter. It's about two thousand to three thousand percent more 
polluting right. down there. And he's happy to send little children down oh, yeah. there, on there. Cheap train money. drivers. Yes, I mean, He doesn't exactly. seem to care about them, does he? No, not at all. I mean, the other couple of interesting stories today around the whole kind of green, air, green and clean air and the electric cars and all of that. Two things. The House of Lords has been complaining <laughs> about Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> they say Rowan Atkinson made terrible, terrible claims about electric cars not really being um, as clean as everyone says they are and basically telling people that if you want to buy an electric car, we're not ready yet and you shouldn't bother. They're now blaming Rowan Atkinson for this kind of backlash against electric cars because sales are going down, aren't they? Well, look, he's been very honest. He, he was an EV convert. He was very much... He's used it, but he's actually realised, and unfortunately, yeah. he recognised that they are not. From cradle to grave, mm. electric vehicles produce more CO2 emissions than diesel and petrol vehicles. Right. I repeat, from cradle to grave. Yes. Yes, when on the road, less CO2 right. because there's no exhaust. Yeah. But actually making the stuff and disposing it, and especially getting passing the battery on in terms of disposing right. of the big batteries, I'm afraid it is it impacting on the emissions much more than yes. people think. Yes, and the Advertising Standards Authority, again, has actually backed what Rowan Atkinson said because they've actually issued a, a ruling on an advert that was put out by BMW this week in which they say you cannot claim that an electric car has zero emissions because the mining of the battery causes emissions. Every time you charge the car, it causes emissions. Whenever there's a process of fixing the car, uh, whenever there's a process of uh, taking it to a garage, putting tyres on it, you know, using the tyres, which, which also give off, you know, pollution into the air, you know, it's a complete nonsense to go on about how this is the cleanest form of transport. And there's a little matter of the electric uh, charging point. The electricity is generated by fossil fuels. Exactly right. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, it's a complete nonsense to actually try and make out that electric cars are better for the planet. And in fact, you could argue they're actually worse for the planet. Well, we do. I mean, mm. I, we wrote a report, the Motorcycle Action Group, Alliance of British Drivers and me at Fairfield mm. UK. We produced a report and gave it out to every MP. And I think it did open a few eyes. Of course, the Greens said it's all a load of old tosh as yeah. well. Well, this is the thing. And I mean, we've been sold down the river yes. by all of our politicians who have all, you know, hooked themselves up to this net zero mania, which is what it is. Um, nobody still to this day, whenever I ask them, any politician, when I say to them, well, what if we do get to net zero by whatever year it is that you want us to get to it by, what happens then? Will my life be immeasurably better? Uh, will I walk down the street breathing in cleaner air? Of course not. Well, let's remind ourselves we're responsible for 1% of the emissions in the whole yeah, world right. and we import most of the fuel when we could actually have... Look, fracking and all other sorts of oil, North Sea, etc. Yeah. We could be self-sufficient and our fuel could be cheaper. And don't forget, in four weeks' time, Mike, we've got a budget. Yes. As you know, that's my time of fighting to get fuel As, duty Are you cut. hopeful that they will either uh, cut fuel duty or at least cut something for... The motorists. I, I don't. I really don't know. All I know is I don't think they put it up because that would be economic and political suicide for mm. a start. But there's two things about it. I hope they cut fuel duty a little bit. I want it to be a lot, but I think they will cut fuel duty and say they're a tax cutting and helping motorists. Mm. And the other thing, you remember the pump watch thing, which is the opportunity yes. profiteering. I want that to have teeth, and I want yes. him to announce that. Well, you know what I found really ridiculous was that um, the, the price difference differential, particularly on motorway service oh. stations and 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 ordinary sort of you know, petrol stations, even in London, which would normally be more expensive say than the ones outside in Sussex or whatever but they're, they're charging like 20 30p more on a motorway service station absolutely and that's why I want pump per liter that if is. we had a proper pump watch a proper uh, consumer price regulatory yeah. body on pr pump pricing we would see it'll be transparent be honest and we know what's happening that 30p wouldn't happen yeah it's incredible absolutely ridiculous well Howard great to see you again as ever 
Always good to uh, call out Sadiq Khan uh, on the sort of nonsense that he puts out there as fact, when it is clearly not fact at all. We'll be talking to Steve Berry, the former Top Gear presenter. Uh, we'll get his view on electric cars coming up a little bit later on in the show. But blasting into the night, this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, we're going to have a look at Labour being caught with its trousers down over spending plans and HS2's misery as it becomes even less value to commuters than it already was. You literally couldn't make this stuff up. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. Now, it was only a matter of time. It had to happen. As we edge ever nearer to an election, the Labour Party will have to unveil not only what policies they wish to implement, but exactly how they're going to pay for them. As Labour councils up and down the land head towards bankruptcy thanks to their own profligacy, many of them will now have to charge double the normal council tax increase to households to try and rescue the dire financial crisis they are in, and it won't be cheap. It could hand £200 or more uh, to the average bill in places as disparate as Birmingham, Slough and Somerset, and that rise will hit thousands of families right where it hurts. Today we learn that Sir Keir Starmer's on-again, off-again £28 billion green plan has been woefully ill-prepared and is completely out of step with reality. As part of Captain Hindsight's eco-silver bullet to create jobs and make Britain more environmentally friendly, Labour have vowed to spend £6 billion of our money to insulate 19 million homes. But there appears to be a small problem. The government have pointed out that the Labour estimate is nowhere near the true cost to the taxpayer. Instead, they say, it'll cost more like double that, possibly even as much as £15 billion. And they're also suggesting that Britain's debt by then will be much bigger than it is now. Of course, this threw the Labourites into a heck of a tailspin. They were forced to admit that they wouldn't spend anything like the £6 billion until much later on in Parliament. In other words, they've kicked it into the long grass. Everyone knows that just copying some policy from the nutters that insulate Britain isn't the way to make Britain cleaner or more efficient environmentally. And without proper actual costing, they might as well just chuck it all in a recycling bin, mightn't they? The Tories have actually done something sensible on this. They've enlisted the help of civil servants in the energy department to prove that their numbers are correct. But naturally, Labour say they're nonsense, suggesting they'll find other ways to find funding for the scheme. One former senior civil servant was also a bit dismissive of the Tory figures. Over the next nine months, he said, we will have to tolerate many in a Treasury official costing of opposition policy. Since time immemorial, whatever the party in power, these costings have had little, if any, credibility. Well, I think we know which side of the divide he's occupying. Starmer's raid on public money to create his big enviro dream will end up just like the net zero crusade. Too expensive, too ambitious and too bloody difficult to fund. The flip-floppery is becoming a daily occurrence now. And make no mistake, all the money will inevitably have to come from us. No matter how much they borrow, no matter how big the debt becomes, it looks like we've got months of this to come. Lord help us. Now, moving on, every passing minute brings in more shame for the HS2 debacle, as a newly published report finds the London to Birmingham leg, known as Phase 1, could bring in as little as £1.10p for every £1 spent on the darn thing after completion. Meanwhile, regional mayors Andy Burnham and Andy Street have announced they're looking into alternative funding methods that do not rely 
on public funding after Rishi Sunak scrapped phase two last year. That's the bit that goes from the West Midlands to Manchester. Joining me now is rail expert and historian Christian Walmart and a resident of Litchfield as well, Chris Wilkinson, who's had his life turned upside down by the chaos of the now abandoned Birmingham to Manchester line. Uh, welcome to both of you. Christian, let me start with you. Um, how does that compare, that £1.20 for every pound spent, to the rest of the railway? Because the last time you and I spoke, we were moaning on about how much money it was costing the annual sort of taxpayer bill to keep all of these different artificially inflatable private companies going. Uh, well, Mike, I think actually you've um, overestimated the value there. Uh, the, the one pound twenty—it's—it's more like eighty p or seventy five p in oh, really? a lot of cases. Mm. Um, so uh, you've actually been too optimistic about <laughs> it. Um, uh, you know, in fact, I mean, this is this is just going to get worse. I mean, the point is that they've ended up with a line that I've called the Acton to Aston Shuttle. In other words, it goes from West London through to just about uh, the centre of Birmingham. Mm. Um, and uh, they've recognised, and that you, you've got your figures from the Public Accounts Committee report today, they recognise that that is an absolutely useless concept, that um, unless they finish it to Euston or actually do build a bit that they've just cut out through to Crewe, um, nobody much is going to use the line, and right. it doesn't have a business case at all, which is where you got your figures from. So... Uh, you know, they're, cut, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Either they kind of spend yet more billions uh, on building it or uh, they have this absolutely useless line. Well, I mean, it is an absolutely useless line. And, I mean, I think when we spoke um, last time, Chris, um, we found out from you that you've had your life sort of turned upside down um, and, in fact, you've had no benefit. If anything, life has got even worse. What's it been like the last few weeks since we last spoke? Well, uh, since then, the shop that I uh, managed has actually closed down because of Blimey. lack of footfall. Uh, there's hardly any traffic coming up the A38, so unfortunately we've had to shut, and I've got that fed up with it that I've taken the decision to move uh, down to Burton from <laughs> Litchfield okay. uh, because I, I've just totally had enough with it at this point. Yeah. And uh, the economic opportunities are there, so I'm going to take them. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good... And there will be other people like you, in, presumably in the same kind of uh, situation, where, um, you know, because you can't get to work or because you can't find work where you are, because it's all been ripped up and sort of, uh, you know, uh, messed about with, you have to just move house. Yeah, I suppose, in a sense, I've been pushed to the more extreme end of it. Um, most people could probably stomach uh, a few extra minutes on the commute, but when things are doubling or trebling... Yeah and it's taken over an hour to get to work each day, you kind of think, well, you know, I can't really do this day in, day out. And particularly when we're opening a shop late, mm. uh, it's having a real impact on trade. Well, exactly and, right. Because uh, if, if you can't get to the shop that you're working in, presumably neither can anybody else who wants to buy things there. So you end up basically destroying all those businesses. And Christian, let me come back to you. I mean, these are the kind of hidden sort of dangers of HS2, aren't they? The way that HS2 has kind of just ploughed this great furrow up the country and large bits of it now aren't ever going to be finished. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely incensed about, uh, in particular, uh, Euston, near where I live, um, is now a desert. They right. demolished uh, a, a very good uh, block of council housing. They demolished a hotel. Mm. They demolished a, a pub that I used to patronise sometimes. 
Um, and uh, it's now an absolute wasteland. And uh, your pictures are showing, you know, the happy kind of new bits they're building. Your picture should actually show the devastation of, mm. of Houston and the devastation right. of uh, the, the area uh, uh, also north of uh, uh, um, Hansacre, where, where your uh, other uh, yeah, guest is, is yeah. um, right. which has actually been devastated by... Uh, the, the, the land grab and mm. uh, the demolition and yeah. uh, you know I I'm just I just think it's a, one of the big scandals of all time. Right. Well, also the whole Euston area has been turned into a massive traffic jam because nobody can get in and out of Euston. There used to be a car park there that you could park your car in if you were dropping people off or picking people up. There isn't one now, so instead everybody has to wait around by the side Eversholt Street. I know this sounds a bit local for people who are not from London, but you know, um, Euston Station itself is an absolute eyesore. It's old. It's run down. It's knackered. You know, uh, the taxi rank is hopeless. They've closed off loads of streets, so you can't access it from, from anywhere but one place. It's hopeless. No, there's lessons to be learned from this, uh, Mike, which is that, you know, if they do a future big project like this, they have oh, to please, think it through not, and they have to work out ideas. exactly what they're going to do before they actually start demolishing places and ripping people's lives apart. Yeah, I know. I mean, Chris, it is incredible, isn't it, that this government... I mean, I don't want to make it too political for you unless you wish to make it so, but, I mean, they've come up with this plan to build this high-speed rail system, which is literally the worst project I think I've ever seen. It's hopeless. I don't know any part of it that's actually working. Do you? No, I suppose the protests are having some sort of an effect, but, I mean, this is the highest uh, spending project uh, government sort of decision that's ever been made mm. and the fact that it's been implemented so utterly incompetently really does raise questions about uh, how many other government schemes have actually gone ahead on the basis of cost underestimations like yeah. this because I guarantee you it's not just HS2 it's going to be very no, I was I was at a defence uh, meeting with lots of defence people yesterday and they mm. said, if you think HS2 is bad, you should look at defence procurement. It's actually <laughs> worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're the people that have got an aircraft carrier with no aircraft on it, I think, apart from anything else. But what, <laughs> about, yes. what about Andy Burnham and his plan? What does he want to do? He seems to think that he uh, might be able to fund this some other way. What does he mean by that? Well, he means by uh, the private sector. And, and I can tell you, you might get a few bobs from the private sector and... Uh, you might be able to kind of do uh, little bits, but there's no way that you can fund a, a scheme like this uh, through the private sector because there's no investment return on it is ever going right. to be made. And the same goes for Houston. I mean, Houston is now supposed to be funded by the private sector. And I've talked to a lot of private sector people about this, and they say there is absolutely no chance that you can generate the profits from running the line through to Houston of you know something like four or five billion that you would need to build the line and the, and the associated mm. tunnel. So uh, you know I'm I'm afraid that you know it, it's well and good. It's uh, nice to see uh, a Tory mayor working with a Labour mayor and trying to get something done. But I'm afraid the task is probably just above them. Yeah, it really is. It's an absolute shambles. But uh, Christian, thank you very much indeed. Final word to you, Chris. Um, have any of your sort of other friends moved away as well? Just because there's really no point in living. Uh, in Litchfield anymore? Uh, not that I know of. Um, I seem to be the rare exception, mm. but uh, I suppose my case is a rather particular one, is that I don't have a car right. and have to rely on 
bus transport to get there. Right. Um, so I'm sort of at the mercy of the existing uh, transport infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, bad luck. I mean, you might have to change that as we go <laughs> forward because I'm afraid the transport infrastructure is just going to get worse. Thanks very much to both of you. Chris Wilkinson there, uh, Christian Walmart as well. We'll talk to you both again soon, I'm sure. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, find out why BBC plonker Gary Lineker is back in the headlines. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Good evening and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, Gary Lineker is at it again. The Match of the Day host claims he helped write the BBC's social media guidelines which have allowed him to share his political views. Joe Biden appears to forget the name of Hamas as the 81-year-old president bumbles through another embarrassing press conference. And Harry Potter star Emma Watson can't weave her magic over the police as her £30,000 Audi is towed away after it was illegally parked. 
Prince William has shown tonight just exactly what it means to be the heir to the throne of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite a bruising few weeks and months caring for his wife, the Princess of Wales, despite coping with the news that his father, the King, has just been diagnosed with cancer, and despite the eyes of the world being firmly fixed on his entire family, he was out in public last night helping to raise money for two new air ambulances in London. Naturally, the world was watching as he spoke for the first time about the health problems that have beset the royal family. He did so with humour, with compassion, with gratitude and with style. And he even managed to get a bona fide Hollywood superstar into the event as well. His fellow pilot, as he called him, Tom Cruise, was delighted to help out. And what a contrast from Prince William, who was himself an air ambulance pilot in East Anglia, who knows a thing or two about saving lives. He also knows a thing or two about being a royal. And it's very clear he will make a great king whenever he gets the opportunity to do so. And the contrast I'm talking about, of course, is with his little brother, the spiteful, bitter, resentful and disloyal Harry, a man who would sooner expose his own family and his former friends to worldwide scrutiny in a book simply to settle petty scores and to make a bit of money. He flew into Britain yesterday to see his father, the King. He spent barely 26 hours in the country and he's already on his way back to Los Angeles. King Charles agreed to see him for just over half an hour at Clarence House before flying back to Sandringham in a helicopter that he kept waiting while he spoke to his youngest son. Harry was not invited to join him and his wife, the Queen, who has been callously traduced by the man who calls himself the Spare. He was also not invited to spend the night in any of the royal properties either, in London or in Windsor. Instead, the Duke of Sussex stayed the night in a hotel, like so many other American tourists. Because in truth, that is all he is now. His brother William did not wish to see him. Kensington Palace made it very clear that he had no plans to see him either. And who can blame him? Once again, Harry has done nothing but insult him, reveal intimate secrets about him and his wife, and publish private text messages that he received from both of them. Britain wishes the royal family well. Britain sends good wishes to both King Charles and Catherine, Princess of Wales, for a speedy recovery. Britain also is happy to see the back of Prince Harry. Good riddance, mate. Don't hurry back. Now, coming up later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper and they've got lots of coverage of tonight's event that we've been talking about. You can see it there. Your messages of support for Catherine and my father mean a great deal. Uh, and there's pictures of Prince William with Tom Cruise, of course. Uh, Will sends his thanks at the Air Ambulance Bash. And as I say, what an absolute joy to see William out and about doing what he does best, uh, working on behalf of a charity, working on behalf of Great Britain, working on behalf of the country, working on behalf of his father, the King. Just absolutely brilliant. Meanwhile, uh, old Scuttlebutts is scuttling off back to Hollywood uh, to see Maggot. Uh, and his kids, apparently. Duty calls. We'll talk about that a little bit more as well. But barely a week goes by without the BBC's impartiality being called into question. Today, Gary Lineker has claimed he helped to draw up the BBC social media guidelines, the ones which now give him much more freedom, his words, to post his political views. I'm joined now on the phone by former Top Gear presenter, Mr Steve Berry. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, Mike. I'm just wondering as well... You know I like my fast motorbikes and my fast cars. Yes. I'm wondering if, when they think about revising the speed limits, they could have a word with me, because I've got some ideas. Yeah, It might well, be a bit radical, like right. 150 mile an hour on the motorway. <laughs> but, you know... Why Are not you ask, serious? I mean, what, 
why are they asking someone who's he's a freelancer? He's not even he's not even part of the BBC, which he's told us over and over again. Right. Which of course is why he can go off and do all the other lucrative gigs that he does mm. apart from presenting Match of the Day right. by well, preserving his freelance status. Yeah, exactly right. Well, of course, this all came out as a result of a kind of media gathering that was organised um, just this week for a select few people. Um, and Nicole Lampert was one of the people that went along. And she's, I think, a freelance writer as well, but she happens to be also a campaigner uh, on behalf of Israel, given what's going on uh, in Gaza and what happened on October the 7th. And she wanted to ask him all about his tweets, and she wanted to ask him particularly about why he hadn't bothered in any way, shape or form to mention the hostages that had been taken, why he never really tweeted on October the 7th about what actually happened that horrible day uh, in Israel when they were attacked by thousands and thousands of mass terrorists. And so this all came out as a result of that. And he explained to her, basically, um, that he had a hand in designing the new guidelines, which I find staggering. Because if Tim Davey, the um, Director General, is supposed to be trying to kind of, you know, rein him in, what the hell is he doing inviting him to construct the very rules that would probably be the things that he would break? What they should have done is said, yeah, we got Gary in, we put him in a room, we let him speak for an hour, we recorded it, and then we decided to do the exact opposite of everything that he said. He's got... The thing for... The advantage for Gary Lineker is, of course, he can give his opinions, he can make his suggestions, but he has no consequences. He has no responsibility, mm. no executive responsibility. When I left the BBC, I went on the other side of the camera working as a producer and a director, and I had a duty of care to the people who worked underneath me and with me, and I had to abide by producer guidelines. Mike, have you ever seen producer guidelines? It's yes. like, oh, it's just that, honestly, if you dropped it on your foot, you'd be waiting five hours in an HSQ <laughs> at A&E, right. honestly. Well, exactly right. Well, but this is the he's thing. Got I mean, it's... none of those responsibilities. He can just mouth off, and there are no consequences yeah. for him. He's in a perfect position. I was thinking today about the man that went before him, Des Lynham. Now, I've mentioned him before. I met yeah. Des a couple of times, and I know two things about Des. One, boxing was his first love, not football. Yeah. But two, he was a massive fan of Brighton and Orv Albion. Yeah. Like most people, I have absolutely no idea about his politics. Right. He could be as red as a post box mm. or he could be as, you know, as blue as the skies in Florida. Yes. I've no idea because that man just spoke about what he was paid to speak about. Yeah. He didn't feel the need to shove his political opinions down our throat. So when you were watching him, you could just enjoy the football and not sit there thinking, oh, I suppose he knows a bit about football, but he's mm. a terrible one or the other. But Gary Lineker, the, for me, one of the great things about the BBC, I'm not here to bash the BBC, I don't particularly like doing that. It seems terrible to me what's happening. I, I, I don't celebrate it in any way. Yeah. But what it used to do, I think, so well, and I think the death of Ian Lavender this week has brought that into focus yeah. because Dad's Army, was it wasn't just a TV show. That's mm. why that guy's still famous 40 years after it went yeah. off the air. That's why people in the street would shout, don't tell him, Pike, every single day yes. of his life because it brought the nation together. Mm. And that's what the BBC did so well. And that's what Gary Lineker and people like him do not understand. I don't think he's a bad man. I really don't. But I just don't think he understands the consequences of his, his constant divisive commentary. Mm -hmm.
Well, that is it, Steve, isn't it? The point is, is that, you know, you may not want to bash the BBC, but they're doing a pretty good job of bashing themselves because in the end, with every utterance that comes from uh, Gary Lineker's X account or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, you know, he plunges another dagger into the kind of uh, the freedom that the BBC has to report on things, to have opinions um, within the organisation, to have interesting programming, because all that Gary Lineker does is basically snub his nose at these guidelines because he's broken every single one of them. Now, I don't believe that he will be able to carry on without breaking more, but every time he does break them, they seem to make another excuse. You know, he's already broken the one that says you shouldn't attack individuals. He's already broken the one that says that you should stay in your lane and you shouldn't comment on anything which is outside your sphere of expertise, which in his case is football. Um, they say uh, also that he's not supposed to be taking on issues of policy when it comes to government, which he's already broken as well. So I don't believe that somehow he's going to stay outside of this new constructed world that he's helped to frame. But here's the thing, Mike. You think to yourself, well, OK, say the BBC, say Tim Davis says, we've had enough, mate. Sorry, this yeah. isn't working out. You're clearly not abiding by the, by the, the, the agreement that we put in place yes. to make sure this sort of thing didn't happen again. If you went to Sky or ITV, are they any different to the BBC these days, Mike? Well, I would imagine well, if you went I, to one well, of I those... Well, I ask you, are they... Well, they're probably not in terms of how woke they are, but they are different in the sense that they're not funded by the taxpayer. And that's always been yeah. my problem with him. I don't really mind if he's got opinions. I don't really mind uh, whether he shares those opinions. But when he's working for the BBC, which have set guidelines, which he's not supposed to um, uh, override, then he can't do it. It's as simple as that. And if he really wants to show that he's got all sorts of opinions that he wants to share, then leave the bleeding BBC and get a job in the commercial sector where they might give him a different contract or they might not. Well, they would give a different contract, because as you and I both know, because we both worked in that sector for mm. a long time, once the commercial imperative's there, you have to worry yeah. about what Kellogg's or the Ford Motor Company or Pfizer or Procter & Gamble, what they think, when yeah. you have to worry about what they think of all your pious pronouncements, yes. all of a sudden you start to get a different attitude. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Before we let you go, Steve, let's talk about one of your favourite subjects, and that's the car business. Um, electric cars, apparently, are not all they're cracked up to be, according to just not one man, Rowan Atkinson, but also according to the Advertising Standards Authority, who have now today said you can't claim that they've got zero emissions because it isn't true. But what do you make of Rowan Atkinson basically being blamed uh, for the He's fall? He's being blamed. Well, he's being blamed because he put out... A, a, he wrote a piece, I think, in The Telegraph a while back where he said, you know, it's not true to say that these cars are free from emissions because they get loads of emissions when they're being made, loads of emissions when you're charging them, loads of emissions for, for all sorts of things that you have to repair on them. And so it's a complete fallacy. And he actually said, if you really want to get a decent electric car, you should wait a while because they're not that good. Yeah, well, it's like any... My dad, when we were kids, me and my brother called him Inspector Gadget. My dad always... My dad was... The, he's 84 today. Happy birthday, Alan Berry. 84 <laughs> today. Right. Brilliant. He was in hospital for three months when he was born because that, that winter, 1940, was the worst winter this country's ever seen. And they talk about bloody climate change. Oh, anyway, really? Yeah. It was three months at the maternity hospital. He was stuck there. But anyway, we were talking about this today and the, the whole... They, how they blame Rowan Atkinson for basically saying, mm. expressing a, a, an educated opinion. No, Rowan Atkinson's been a car man, a, a gearhead all his life. Totally. He's one of Britain's best respected classic racers. But they were saying, Mr Bean puts a spoke in the wheels of the electric car. And you think, <laughs> oh, come on. 
Ford don't want these electric cars, Mike. I'll tell you why. They're too expensive. There was two halves of sod all. I nearly said something else. Yeah. As soon as you drive them out of the showroom, mm. they don't, for me, the looks of them, they're still trying to make it, I don't know, they did. They, I don't think they've made a sexy looking electric car yet. No. And there were all kinds of reasons. And, at the end, and they don't make a noise. They don't make a, there's, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why people don't want them. But I think, they removed the financial the imperative or the, the benefits, the, the loans, the grants, whatever, far too soon. And they just said, you're on your own now. That's how much they are. Right. And people just said, right, well, if that's, that's how much they are, I don't want one. No. And they're it's not reliable enough. They're not, they're not uh, long-range enough. You can't take them everywhere because you might not find somewhere to charge them. It's just, you know, it's all a bit of a con, really. But we're all virtue signalling for the eco-nutters. Mike, I just got back from the world's greatest classic car show, and it pains me a bit to say that it's in Paris. Retro yeah. Reveal in Paris, the greatest car. One of the stands in there, a British car dealer, he had £200 million worth of cars on his mm. stand, including a McLaren F1, right. which, of course, famously, Rowan Atkinson previously had. Yeah. Not Thinking. one single car in that hall was electric, and 175,000 people trooped through the doors over five days to look right. at them. Amazing. Nobody's ever going to feel about electric cars the way that those people feel about the cars we're in that hall in Paris last no, week. It's just exactly. not going to happen. Exactly we don't right. want them. And in the end, I'm, I'm afraid what's going to happen is they're going to make us have them. Well, they're, they're not going to make, make me have one. I can tell you that, Steve. I'll be the last man on the parapet fighting them off. But thank you very much indeed. Steve Berry there reporting into us uh, on the latest nonsense from Gary Lineker and the BBC. Turns out not only is he breaching the guidelines, he actually helped to write them. Incredible. Absolutely amazing. Let's go stateside now, though, and talk about whether the oldest ever US president has given the clearest signal yet that he is, well, just too old to be in the White House. Joe Biden sparked fresh alarm by awkwardly stumbling through yet another press conference and at one stage even forgetting the name of Hamas. Have a look at this. There is some movement, and I don't want to... I don't want to... Well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement, there's been a response from the, uh, the, the, there's been a response from the opposition, but, um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas, but it seems to be uh, a little over the top. We're not sure where it is. There's a continuing negotiation right now. Yeah, he's not sure. You say that again. Uh, in another clip, the hot mic picked up First Lady Jill Biden giving her husband instructions on how to get off the stage, an issue that's repeatedly plagued the president. Thank you so much. Go out this way. OK. <laughs> Go out this way. Well, I mean, it just goes from bad to worse. Hard to imagine that Joe Biden is, in fact, the supposed leader of the free world, the man uh, with whom we all have to put our hope that he doesn't start World War Three, or that if somebody else starts it, he'll do the right thing. I mean, goodness gracious. Well, joining me now from New York City is Fox News contributor Joe Concha. Joe, very good evening to you. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Yeah, Mike. I mean, even for Joe Biden, that Hamas clip is uh, about as bad as it gets, isn't it? Mike, apparently rock bottom has a ba basement. I mean, it, this was so painful to watch. It's kind of like, you ever try to download a video on your phone, but you're in a place that has bad internet, 
So yeah. then it just keeps pinwheeling and saying buffering, buffering, yeah. buffering. That was like watching the president's mm. brain in action, trying to remember the name of a terror organization that carried out the most hideous, deadly, horrific attack on Jews since we've seen since the Holocaust. Yeah. It's not like he's trying to remember some obscure terror group out of Africa. This is Hamas who's been front and center for the past 127 days since this war began. And the president, the commander in chief of the United States can't remember it. And if this is a one-off, then you say, okay, it happens. Sometimes things escape from our brain yeah. that we should know off the top of our head. But this happens on a daily basis. And Mike, this is a president who has taken more than 40% of his presidency on vacation. If you want to be a crossing guard or if you want to work at the local Quickie Mart, go right ahead. That's fine. But this is the leader of the free world. It's a full-time job. Yeah. And if he thinks that the American people are comfortable with him doing this, not just for the next year, but for the next five years, mm. I think the president's going to have a rude awakening in November. Yeah, I'm absolutely right. I mean, I'm hearing more and more, and you and I have discussed this already once, I think, more and more that there might be some yeah. kind of surprise in, uh, uh, in store at the Democratic National Convention in August because it may well be that the, the, the powers that be inside the Democratic Party just go, as you've just said, how on earth can you expect this guy to ca carry on doing what he's doing for another five years? Well, precisely. And, and the polls show this, right? Democrats can read polls. And NBC just had one out earlier this week showing that 76% of American voters don't think that Joe Biden has the mental or physical prowess to do this job now. What about 2028 when he's 86 years old? Even a majority of Democrats are thinking that way. But at, at this point, it's obviously too late to get somebody to challenge him as far as the primary. So the party that says they're going to save democracy from Donald Trump will be the most anti-democratic body we will ever see if they decide to go to the convention in Chicago in July and then pull a fast one by saying, all right, Joe Biden, say you have a health problem, take a seat, and we're going to install Michelle Obama or yeah. Gavin Newsom or Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, in his place without voters having any say in it whatsoever. But I wouldn't put it past the Democratic Party at this point because they're about winning and nothing else. Screw democracy, screw voting. They want the White House again. Right. And, of course, the other thing they've started doing, and I've noticed this by uh, listening to some of the kind of the former Obama speechwriters, the former, you know, Clinton people, all of the people who get wheeled out, you know, to give their opinion on what's going on in the United States of America over here. Um, and they're all saying things like, well, you know, Donald Trump's also fading a little bit. You know, he's also uh, 77 years old. He's nearly as old as Joe Biden. He's starting to make mistakes. He's started talking about winning three times in New Hampshire. He's just as cognitively challenged as Joe Biden. Absolute rubbish, right? It's not true. Well, they take everything out of context with Trump, too, right? When Trump said that he won three times in New Hampshire, he was speaking in the context of the Republican primary because right. he just won a Republican primary that night. And of course, they say, no, see, he's losing it. He yeah. lost in 2020 in New Hampshire. He was talking about the primaries, you morons. Right. So that, that's what's going on <laughs> at this point. It's not about the number, by the way. 81 is 81. My dad's 81, and he's as sharp as ever. He kicks right. my butt in jeopardy every time I play him. But it's, it's not about the number. It's about how you're aging. And Donald Trump still shows a, a tremendous amount of vigor. He's completely coherent. He's yeah. coherent in his arguments. He may fumble a name once in a while, but not nearly a fraction of the, the times we see it uh, with the current commander-in-chief and Joe Biden. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw Joe Biden make any kind of statement which was not an embarrassment in terms of the way he delivered it. And I don't remember really any time... Uh, in the entire presidency that he's had. And we remember, of course, going back to the campaign days, that he wasn't campaigning either, and he blamed COVID, sort of hid in the basement.
Yeah, and now he's attempting to do that again, Mike, right? He's attempting to win back the presidency and, and be reelected by pleading the fifth, right? So how do you do that at this point? And look, he hasn't held, you know, anything resembling like an extensive press conference in many, many months. We have the Super Bowl coming up. It's like our World Cup. 120, 125 million people will be tuning in to watch the Chiefs and the 49ers. And every year, the president of the United States sits down with the network, in this case CBS, that carries the game for a pregame interview. And for the second straight year, in an election year, no less, Joe Biden is saying, oh, no thanks, uh, or at least his handlers are, are petrified and saying, no thanks, the president won't be doing that. So outside of a teleprompter, here's what we know. This is the most protected, homogenized president we have seen in U.S. history. And if he doesn't have scripted remarks in front of him, his handlers believe that he is going to screw the pooch not only in aisle five, but 17 and 21, where they're going to have to do some massive cleanup. I don't know how you win a campaign this way. In 2020, it worked for him because he didn't have a record to defend. He certainly has a record right. that he has to talk about now. And if he continues to hide from the cameras, the American people will certainly notice this. Absolutely right. And, it's certainly, and his record is, is woeful as well. We haven't really got time to talk about Nikki Haley, but yeah. uh, she suffered a pretty big embarrassment in Nevada. Um, she's got to be out of the race anytime soon, hasn't she? She'll be out after South Carolina. I think she stays until February 24th when that primary is held in her home state. And when she's beaten by 30, 35, 40 points, obviously there's no path. There's no path for her now. Uh, but I guess she just wants to have one uh, last stand in her home state. But that will be certainly an embarrassment and hurt any chances that she may have of running again in 2028 because Trump supporters see her as just playing the role of spoiler at this point mm -hmm. and not somebody who actually believes that they could win, Mike. Right. Joe Concha, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Reporting into us from Fox Live uh, in New York City. Uh, we've got a little bit of breaking news for you now. Um, now, just a little bit after I spoke about this, this has happened. Labour is ditching its policy of spending £28 billion a year on its green investment plan. I mean, even for them, this is a major U-turn. An official announcement apparently will be made on Thursday. Sources insist the party's green prosperity plan, which includes creating a publicly owned green power company, is not being dropped altogether, they say, but Labour will no longer commit to investing £28 billion a year in green energy projects if it wins power. Now, this also includes, of course, what we talked about in the last hour when I suggested to you that they hadn't properly costed any of this. They hadn't properly costed their uh, Insulate Britain plan, which they wanted to spend £6 billion on. The Tories poured a, a lot of cold water on that today, and it looks as though now, um, quicker than ever, really, after my taking the mic, they've now dropped the whole thing. Brilliant. That's exactly what we do here at the Independent Republic. I'm ready for launch. It is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. After the break, we'll look at the man that is sitting Putin down for an interview in English Plus, the duplicitous campaign to get gay kids to change gender. Crazy times. See you after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham. The police searching for Kemal attack suspect Abdul Azidi admitted today they have absolutely no idea where he is. Despite London having the most CCTV cameras in the world and despite having a facial injury that you would think would make him a marked man, literally, Metropolitan Police Commander John Seville said he could have gone north, east, south, west or he could have gone abroad. Of course, they might have had more chance of catching him if they'd actually given out a description last Wednesday when he viciously attacked a woman and two children in Clapham in South London. After he escaped, a picture emerged of him buying some eggs in a local Tesco before the attack. 
And then throughout the night, cameras captured him with his disfigured face at Tower Hill Station, and it was thought he may have gone to Tower Hamlets to hide out. But none of these pictures were released until a day later. And since then, it has emerged that he walked along the River Thames for several hours, even walking past the headquarters of MI6, made famous in that James Bond movie, Skyfall. Police are now trying to retrace his steps from a week ago tonight, and they're now treating the case as attempted murder. After making off in his own car, he crashed it nearby and boarded a tube train at Clapham South Station around 7.30 p.m. Later, he's seen leaving a Tesco's in Caledonian Road at around 8.45. He then heads to King's Cross and boards another tube and is later spotted at Tower Hill Station. By now, it's about 9.30. Then he's seen walking near Southwark Bridge and onto Lower Thames Street, where he walks in plain view until well after 10 o'clock. He's seen walking across Westminster Bridge and then back across Vauxhall Bridge, right under the noses of our spy masters at MI6. And the last sighting is just after 11pm. The police are now urging his AD to give himself up and get medical treatment for what they say could be a life-threatening injury if it becomes infected. They've also confirmed that he was in a relationship with the woman who is now in hospital and that that relationship had broken down. I mean, un unbelievable. Let's talk to the panel about how this can still be uh, a missing persons list when he has that terrible disfigured face that nobody seems to be able to report him for. Um, but let's talk about Harry Potter because uh, Harry Potter star and renowned feminist Emma Watson found herself in a spot of muggle bother as her £30,000 Audi was towed away by police this week after she left it illegally parked in front of a car park entrance. Apparently, no-one owned up to the car being theirs until police began to tow it away. Then, abracadabra, Watson came running out, claiming it was her car after all. Not sure how you can magic your way out of this one, mudblood. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. In the United States, for the first time in history, a mother has been convicted for the mass shooting carried out by her son. Jennifer Crumbly was found guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter. And back with me now uh, is my panel, uh, all three. Candice is here, Ella is here, of course, as well. Very good to see you all. Um, let's talk, shall we first talk about the, uh, the, the missing um, attacker, the chemical attacker, because it seems incredible to me that the police, first of all, didn't give out his description the first night. Second day, they gave out a description, and it was clear that he'd had some kind of terrible injury. Suddenly... Um, they're now saying, well, we don't know where he is. We've got no yeah. way of catching him. It seems extraordinary, doesn't it? I'm wondering if he made himself an omelette outside of MI6, you know, when he yeah. wanted to sell some eggs, he was back yeah. at the war. Yeah, I mean, he could have done. It, it, this is somebody with such a distinguishing feature, almost like a Bond villain himself. Yeah. But what is more disturbing is the fact that this woman is lying in critical care with right. two children and there needs to be justice out there. Yeah. And he's also... And he's also another case of, of somebody who should have been deported. Exactly. They've spoken, um, I think somebody's spoken to, I'm not sure exactly where I read this, but they've spoken to his victim from Newcastle. But he was given asylum. The church, a uh, member of the church yeah. vouched for him. Yes. He was given asylum. But this is after he was done for sexual um, exactly. offences, right? Which is very concerning and once again raises questions about our justice system, how we treat women and how we treat sexual assault yeah. and sexual offences. Are they taken seriously, mm. are we ever going to get above the conviction rate of 1% with cases like this and sloppy work and, you know, pictures not being released on time? I don't really know how things are going to pro progress. Yeah. I mean, it seems extraordinary, doesn't it? Well, it's interesting in your introduction you talk about the fact that, I mean, the most surveilled city, London, right. you cannot, there's no street you can go down in London where you're not being captured by a dash cam or a CCTV right. or whatever. Um, and this is 
But the well, most my recent... car never gets missed if it goes down the wrong well, exactly. one-way street the wrong way or parks in a place that's not supposed to be parked. But this is the latest in a long string of sort of missing person, whether they're mm. sort of supposed victims or alleged perpetrators, and that the police can't get a handle on. Mm. It seems to... It's, a, it's an advert for police incompetence at this point. Mm. And, you know, as you've already said, the, the link with domestic violence... Mm. Um, the select, you know, the fact that he w w previously knew the woman that they were in a relationship yeah. brings and back it's driven the kind of down from Newcastle, obviously for a particular reason. And whether it went wrong and he then decided to attack her, or whether he came down with the intent to attack mm -hmm. her, he shouldn't even be in the country. Well, it? it's never the first time as well. I mean, oh. when something makes the news that it's so egregious mm. that we all hear about it, you think, well, what has this person done before? Because there's always a long string of offences. Yeah. I mean, it was the same with the guy who had the crossbow outside someone's yes. house in South East London. Yeah. Guess what? He'd stalk someone for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's never the first mm. time before there's this escalation. Right. And it just seems like people don't get on top of it earlier right. until it gets exactly. worse and worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And that is the problem here. I mean, they should have a, surely a hard and fast rule, which isn't that difficult. If you're um, found guilty of an offence, particularly a sexual offence, if you wanted to, you know, delineate them, um, you cannot possibly get asylum in this country. But it's opaque, the process. What yeah. goes on? Like, how do they weigh things? I mean, you know, people do report that they say, well, even though they have done that, they'd still be in danger, so I choose to weight that higher. But obviously yeah. the public are saying, no, we don't want you to do that. Mm. Yeah. But no one's ever held accountable for no. it. No. And it's always people say, oh, well, we made mistakes and, you know, we'll learn from lessons and, you know, we won't do it again. But then they, they do it again. But this is what happened with Claire's law. The mm. law brought in place to protect victims of domestic violence, named after a woman who was killed by domestic violence. Yeah. I asked a police officer, do you allow women to access information if they've had several calls for, about an abusive male. Right. And they said no, only when a conviction is made. As we know, the conviction rate is far less than the rate of reporting and the rate of instance. Yeah. Therefore, is, is, the, is it just, you know, shop front dressing? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's not working, that's for sure. Let's go back to Emma Watson, because actually when we talked about it earlier, we didn't have the right pictures, I don't think, so we can have a look at the pictures again. Apparently she parked in a place where she didn't realise she was blocking everybody in. Um, now, I'd like to say we've all done it, um, but I don't think I've actually done that. And she was in a pub, which is... I'm not suggesting for a minute she was going to then uh, come out and drive the car, but apparently she didn't realise she was blocking some poor guy in who was a chef um, who couldn't get out of his uh, car parking space for something like three hours. Um, so, I mean, it's a little bit irresponsible, isn't it? I thought she was a green um, magnet as well. That's What's she why? doing driving an Audi A3? Which is quite, <laughs> quite a nice little car. Burns the, uh, burns the old fuel quite well. Well, yeah, but, I mean, there's... there's it's on trend at the moment for Taylor Swift is currently getting a lot of flack in the papers yes in the morning for going on airplanes all over the place to see her boyfriend yeah I mean celebrities are meant to be and they do proselytize from on high yeah about how eco and wonderful they are right. and they do all these adverts and they sign up these campaigns but at the end of the day they're lazy yeah I mean they want to just well, drive she was like a UN ambassador for something or other, wasn't she I don't <laughs> yeah. know what it was yeah women's ambassador <laughs> women something like that yeah but I mean I'm quite pleased that she goes out to the pub I suppose I mean but it is one of those awful things parking in the wrong place I mean my parking stories mostly involve getting parking tickets for things you know and because they never well, miss those maybe she had too many boss of beers that's possible but the technology can be tyrannous. My mum got a ticket saying she'd parked for something like eight, like eight nine hours right. in the parking bay. It wasn't her car. She had to tell them, that is not my car. But they were like, no, but we've got you on camera and the camera doesn't lie. Yeah. And she had to fight for ages to say, yes. that is not my car. Right. 
I mean, when I lived in Edinburgh and we used to have um, sort of radio cars that would drive around with the radio station I was working for, um, I used to get off every single parking ticket that they gave us because you'd ask question the calibration uh, of the machine that gave the ticket <laughs> because it wasn't always synchronised with the actual machine that you bought the ticket from. Yeah. So the people walking around, and we won every single one. Oh, that um, sounds great. Never, which is actually it's just always worth trying. Not <laughs> suggesting for a minute it's not illegal, but if you question the veracity, particularly if it's only a five-minute difference... You should well, always... Well, yeah, you say definitely. that, but in, in some councils in London, they want you to actually write a letter to mm. appeal, so you just don't bother, because it takes mm. so long. <laughs> um, and so then you have to go find somewhere to post it, you have to buy a stamp. Yeah. So there you, are can't people, it, you can't do it online. There are people that level of petty. Yes. <laughs> but me? Me. I take pleasure in it. First, there's the <laughs> marital row of who, is, who it is, who's been captured by the camera. And then there's who's going to write the letter. Do you know the one, the worst one, the most annoying one I got recently was I dropped my daughter. It was in December. She was going off to do something for New Year. Dropped her at Heathrow in the, you know, terminal drop-off zone, which apparently you now have to pay to do, right? Yeah. And, of course, I got home and completely forgot to do it. So then, about a month later, I got a, um, a bill for 40 quid. Well, it was 80 quid, but 40 quid if you... And I was like, I was literally there for 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Dropping her off. She got out. I drove off. Got home, completely forgot to pay it. And, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Licence to print money. Let's talk about airlines, actually, because um, airlines are now going to say... And this is an idea of mine from 10 years ago, weigh passengers as well as their luggage, which I think is a brilliant idea. Didn't Katie Hopkins say the same thing? Did she? Well, she yeah, probably nicked it from did. me. I mean, I did this when I was still working in Scotland, you know, that basically if, you, if everybody has a set amount of weight that they can have, you can either decide to have loads of bags or no bags or you get some kind of reduction if you're not using that particular amount of weight. And if you happen to be bigger than everybody else, then you can't have as much luggage. Mm. Seems to make sense. I don't sense that any of you think this is a good idea. You're probably, it's probably because you're talking to three mums who've had to carry buggies oh, on planes. So I've had to carry buggies on planes. Well, you don't get away with that. <laughs> yes, this is a, a gender-free zone, I'm telling you. No, gender-free zone, but what's about in the case of pregnancy? Do you, are you charging a pregnant woman more <laughs> yeah. because she's got an no, extra eight just, pounds? No, she just can't bring as much stuff with her. Which, in fact, I've always asked pregnant women why they carry so much stuff around. The women in general carry too much stuff around, don't they? The secrets of yeah, the handbag, then, I'm afraid. Yeah. I don't want to know what they are. <laughs> but you really don't. We need some kind of other holiday tax then, because however many holidays I've been on, and I've brought too much stuff. I've always been asked for something right. by the yeah. other person. So men tend to forget things that they need. Yes, they so do. So it goes both ways. Well, you don't have to help them out, you know. You just say, well, sorry you haven't brought your shaving kit. Go and buy some more over there, you know. But the idea yeah. of where, you know... Do you resent? Is that what it is? Do you resent having to pay for an extra 30 kilos and then you see Mr or Mrs get on and they've got an extra 60 yeah. kilos? Yeah, I mean, is I that, that take exception to people who bring too much stuff on, you know, on board with them, you know, like the carry-on, mm. especially if you're going, like, long haul, as you guys probably have all done, mm. um, and you get these people with massive great suitcases just trying to shove them up to the, you know, mm. uh, the overhead... Um, lockers and you you know I think there should be a limit on what you're allowed to bring I just I just feel like the whole fly thing it's becoming very puritanical it used to be yeah. and draconian yes. and fun. it's not pleasurable anymore exactly. I don't no. think it, I never felt it was pleasurable but I felt felt it was bearable before and now it's oh. just post-covid I remember getting flight to Ireland when we were kids the first yeah. flight we ever got you got breakfast on an airline yeah. flight you got a fry up yeah it was a 
you know, you paid a significant amount of money and it was a fun thing to do. Yes. And now it's like it's being a battery trick. It? It's just <laughs> And you sit for ages and also even... And now the latest thing is, is that even if you've got some kind of lounge access, everybody's got lounge access now, so it kind of defeats the object yeah. of having lounge access. The riffraff. The riffraff. Everyone, well, everyone's got access you, yeah. in some way, shape or form. <laughs> so you can't even go and hide in one of those places. It's a nightmare, absolute nightmare. Let's talk about Tucker Carlson, shall we? interviewing uh, Vladimir Putin. Some people are saying he shouldn't be allowed to do it. The EU have started to uh, talk about possibly sanctioning mm. Tucker Carlson for some reason. I mean, I don't see any problem with this. If you want to go and interview Vladimir Putin, surely that's what his job is, isn't it? Yeah, journalists should be able to interview whoever they want. Yeah. And to, to be quite honest, getting an interview with somebody of that status, no matter what you think of them, in order to hear their views and, and hear what they mm. have to say and ask the relevant questions and hold them accountable, they do need to be, you know, engaging with journalism. So I don't... I, don't I mean, he might not be that engaging in no. terms of what he I wants don't to think, say. I don't think he's know. going to be allowed well, to, he's, to I mean, put his right. PR move. In yeah. terms of his journalistic skill, um, he's lacking because, obviously, he made this big pronouncement about how it was disgraceful that Western journalists hadn't right. ever tried... Which is not actually know. true. It's not no, true no, at no. all. Not obviously, true. it's an open goal for, you know, BBC to come out and say, Hang on a minute. We've we have we we almost try weekly. Yes. Mm. And actually, um, as some U.S. journalists have pointed out, there are his fellow U.S. journalists are actually in jail mm. in Russia so yes. for for trying to report openly. Right. Um. You know, Russian journalists. There's, it's impossible to report. Um, in an open sort of free press manner in Russia. But do you think that means he shouldn't Russia. do it though? Because if they no, say I think yes. he should. But I wish it was. I wish it was someone who would have would ask questions that I'd like right. to ask Putin. But yeah. I guess that... Because that, that, exactly. that's exactly. interesting, the timing and the person who was chosen. So yeah. Tucker Carlson, it's probably an audience that they want, right? So yes. people who are very isolationist, mm. who are against the war, in an election year yeah. as well. Mm. That's possibly that's why. Let's have a look at what Tucker says, because this is what he had to say on his own Twitter account. Not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview the president of the other country involved in this conflict, Vladimir Putin. Most Americans have no idea why Putin invaded Ukraine or what his goals are now. They've never heard his voice. That's wrong. Americans have a right to know all they can about a war they're implicated in. And we have the right to tell them about it because we are Americans too. Freedom of speech is our birthright. We were born with the right to say what we believe. That right cannot be taken away no matter who is in the White House. He is quite good at it, isn't he? But, I mean, I'm not this is the same guy that came out with a lot of rubbish when he was interviewing Donald Trump, saying that uh, Donald Trump was kind of in danger mm -hmm. and that somebody was going to kill him so that he couldn't become president again. And you kind of go, yeah, I mean, hyperbole is one thing, mm. but, you know, this is quite well, serious. He's absolutely right about freedom of speech being important and mm. defending that and it being America's birthright. Um, you know, but... Nobody is under any illusion as to why Putin invaded Ukraine. No. I mean, Tucker Carlson is not going to illuminate that for the American no. public. We know that already. Also, we have heard his voice. It's not true to say we haven't heard his voice. And it's not like, I mean, I don't know what magic powers Carlson thinks he has that, you know, Putin, the notorious stage man who has yeah. never let his guard down to anyone, right. is suddenly going to say, he's also how do you know what? Here few, it is. He's meant to have quite a few lookalikes. How does he know he's not even <laughs> exactly. you know, interviewing one of the lookalikes? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Sorry, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say it sounded like a script, um, what Tucker was saying. I don't necessarily disagree with him um, as a whole, 
but I do think it'll be very curated. Yeah. And it, it, it's, good, it's good publicity for both of them. I think it's very mutually beneficial Oh, it action. is. Oh, this will be huge for Tucker yeah. Carlson, trying to strike out I wonder out if Carol Vorderman yeah. will ask for Putin to resign. <laughs> I wonder if they'll make a bet. Who can say? Um, but listen, uh, this is the real deal. It's the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Up next, we're all going to have a look at some of the hot stories uh, from tomorrow, as well as the grim prospect of opening your own vegetarian calf. See you on the other side. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. Once upon a time, some bright spark in the marketing department thought it would be a great idea to change the eating habits of a nation. It wasn't enough, they said, to eat vegetables as part of a healthy, well-balanced diet. Oh, no. Now it was necessary to do away with meat altogether, because, after all, it would be better for the planet and you wouldn't have to kill any animals. They even argued that if you didn't follow their lead and go completely vegetarian, you might actually be one of those horrid climate deniers. They started arguing that eating plants would actually mean the climate would stop killing us. The fad appeared to be catching on as more and more restaurants opened up serving meat-free lunches and dinners, offering nut roast instead of roast beef, falafel instead of chicken. Around eight years ago, they got even more carried away and decided that being vegetarian wasn't enough, so they invented veganism where you only eat vegetables and you can't even have any dairy products to dull the pain. So no milk, no cheese, no cream, no butter. Sounds hideous, right? No fun, please. And this is where Pret comes in. The rather snobby food chain unveiled eight different veggie and vegan-only branches in London and Manchester. Where else? The home of the Gen Zers. They only sold veggie and vegan options, but like the rest of the world, Pret customers didn't really fancy the idea. By 2022, many of them had become a waste of space and so they closed them down. The salad bowl experience really hadn't worked. Now, this week, they've closed the final remaining three outlets in the two cities, even though they claim all of their outlets now sell veggie options. If the pandemic didn't see them off, eating habits have done for them. In the lead-up to Christmas, the public spend on meat, fish and poultry was up 11.6% on the previous year, and people across the UK spent almost £600 million more on dairy products, also up on the previous year, while the spend on plant-based alternatives dropped by 11%. Quite right, too. After all, we're not rabbits. We are omnivores. The survival of the species depends on it. As vegan restaurants across Britain close their doors for the last time or start catering to meat eaters, the tide has most definitely turned. And Pret have had to learn the hard way. Go woke, go broke. The world of woke. Well, I'm back with Eve, Candice and Ella. Um, let's have a look at the front pages. The Sun, I still think this is always a great headline, isn't it? Top Sun, Tom Cruise and the Prince of Wales, the future king. We haven't really talked about um, the whole situation with the royals. Um, what have you made of it all? Harry coming and going, Charles going off to Sandringham. Is there something a, a little bit... <laughs> a little bit sort of, I don't know, gauche about... Having, having the papers talking for the last few days about what a hard-working dad you are, how difficult it must be to have mm. a wife in hospital and, you know, having to look after the kids. Of course, don't mention the nannies, but, you know, no. so difficult. 
Um, uh, and then you're out on the Raz, basically. <laughs> I mean, there's something a little... I'm sure I think you've been a bit hard. Lots of women looking at that front page were saying, right, yeah. Well, the kids are already in bed, I guess, yeah. by this time of night. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he hasn't been able to read to them the bedtime story tonight. But, you know, he has been out there sure raising money for charity. And he's been with Tom Cruise. I mean, it's quite a good excuse, isn't it? I Sorry, darling, so. I was out with Tom Cruise. <laughs> Sorry I didn't read the kids in bed. he's still around. I mean, Tom Cruise went quite strange for a bit, you know? Well, yeah, but he's... he's everybody's sort of, yeah. People quite like him, though, don't they? I suppose. I mean, I think he's got through that. He's got past the Scientology thing, I think, you know? Because when he got, he got sort of um, divorced, didn't he? And it all seemed to kind of go away. And then he did these great Top Gun films, yeah. which people love. They do. They love the Top Gun films. Well, in terms of his actor, he is he is a great actor, and he's very he does all his sort of he does lots of his own stunts and all the rest of it. And yeah, he's impressive in his skill. Yes, like that. And the thing I liked about um, tonight was that, that that William referred to him as his uh, fellow pilot, mm. which has got to have been a dig at old uh, the legend of aviation. Harry, his brother, yes, right? Def definitely. Got to because this is the real legend of aviation, Tom Cruise. You know? I thought that was very cute. Yes. I mean, I haven't personally got over the whole Oprah show, sofa bouncing, yeah. Tom Cruise moment. That will forever define <laughs> him for me. But, you know, I do think that was very sweet of William to call him a fellow pilot. Yes, absolutely. And lots of other stuff. Your message of support for Catherine and my father, because it's quite a big deal tonight, because it's the first time that he's spoken since, you know, the, the, the cancer... A diagnosis, yeah. you know, a few days ago. And so, you know, it's it's quite a big moment for the royal family, I think. And you've got to feel a bit... I mean, I, I don't really feel sorry for Harry, but he's completely out of it now. I don't think he's ever coming back, is he? Yeah. Well, it's like a bit like watching a soap opera or something. Um, mm. It all seems to be falling apart. I mean, obviously, mm. uh, William is looking at the prospect of his job title changing quite rapidly, yes. potentially. Yeah. Um, that must be... That must be a pretty big deal in and mm. amongst, you know, I made a joke at the start, but obviously having a partner having health issues, as Kate is, is horrible. Yeah, it must and, be. Or, or, you know, so you have sympathy for them in that sense. But I think this is an interesting time for mm. the royal family because so much of what's going on feels very soap opery. Yeah. I mean, even the fact that Charles had to come out and make the announcements that he had is so different from how it would be handled by yes. his mother, his right. late mother, yes. that it's, it's, there's the kind of celebrity-ification of the um, royal family, which I think is going to make some people think differently about yeah, him. I, I just wonder so. how long they knew, you know, if they've sort of been staggering the announcements, mm. so it's not a shock. I don't think anybody knew about the cancer. I think that was very much a, a discovery after mm. the, the initial examination. I think examination, it's you know. interesting that they've actually announced it and mm. why, what are the reasons for that? Yeah. And William's going a lot more public. And I think uh, with Harry, you know, he saw him for 30 minutes. Mm. If it was my remaining parent had a cancer yeah. diagnosis and my brother was going through something of that depth, I would put stuff aside to right. make right with them, you know? Yeah, you yes. really would. Yeah. Let's move on to a couple of other ones. Uh, footy fans heading to Euro 2024 <laughs> have been warned by nannying officials to go easy on the beer <laughs> because apparently uh, German stuff is stronger. I mean, are they sure about that? Um, they've got a great picture of, uh, of Harry Kane, who, of course, now plays football for Bayern Munich, uh, dressed in his lederhosen. And they've managed to squeeze in a picture of a, a woman <laughs> holding some beer, like a like one of those maidens in uh, in the Hofbrau House or whatever it is. Um, it's uh, it's a mad story, isn't it? I mean, basically, eight hundred thousand British fans are expected to go but to the Euros. It's outrageous, actually, because mm. it's basically saying, "Don't embarrass us, yeah. you horrible, horrible oinks." Yes. There is nothing more 
um, put upon and sort of degraded and and told off yeah. than a football fan. Yes. People who most of them are just going to have a good time, have a few beers. Most of them are. You know, but they will but be idiots, though, won't they? They, they will. will. But we're there known, always is. Yeah. I, I, you know, we're known for it, though. We are known for going abroad People and causing People act up issues. at Wimbledon. Yeah. I mean, the problem is, is there are also other countries who have got quite a good set of hooligans as well. I mean, the Germans mm. do pretty well. There was a, a Champions League final held once at Wembley between two German teams, and they were fighting all day in London, you know. But nobody made a big thing of it because it's only the Brits that get given a hard time. Yeah. The Scots don't fight either. But there's oh, Puritanism all, now, though, around alcohol. I mean, they're saying yeah. that the younger you are, the less you drink now. Yeah. And yes. there's all these alcohol-free bars where younger people go, whereas... That's ridiculous. Like, people, like, 40-plus are still having fun, they're partying, they're yeah. drinking. You don't feel the need to punch anybody. <laughs> um, what about Taylor Swift? Taylor's huge 10-day private jet mileage, apparently 19,164 miles. We were talking about how awful it is to fly. Not so much on a private jet, I think. Well, the, the most outrageous thing about this story is that it quotes you know, some spokesperson from her team who really indignantly says, uh, well, uh, Taylor has bought enough climate credits for you know, carbon <laughs> credits to cover her. Thank you very much. Well, As that's if right, that's then. like, you know, oh, yeah. OK, then. Right. You've, what, you've thrown a load of money at some trees. That's just that ludicrous idea that people have started up companies where you give them bucket loads of money and they promise to plant trees for you. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, it's literally like taking candy off a baby. And I don't think it's scientifically sound. I mean, I Not think a lot all. of people... Well, my favourite story about all of that was Chris Martin from Coldplay who bought a load of trees in Sri Lanka um, to offset his tour of South America or something. And they all caught fire because it was so hot there. Mm. And they were destroyed. <laughs> and so not only making the carbon situation even worse, actually adding to it by doing so. Um, if anyone actually said you cannot buy um, environment credit, that doesn't exist, that isn't a thing. No, it's BS. Yeah, <laughs> I, that, rubbish. that's made me furious. It's, rich, it's rich people's yeah. things. Harry and Meghan do mm. it as well. Um, Finally, a very strange one on the front of the Independent, the I newspaper, Viagra linked to reduced risk of Alzheimer's. And then they say, excited scientists demand further research to investigate unexpected benefit of erectile dysfunction drugs. How excited? How excited are they? I mean, why would you have to say <laughs> that they're excited? Um, you can't have Viagra in a sentence without also... <laughs> but this is the eye, though. They're supposed to be ho-faced and kind of lefty. They're not supposed to be making fun of Viagra and erectile dysfunction. I like, I like the facts that they're, you know... I mean, well, it's a, just a, a, a lot of it is just a blood thinner. When when I was going through fertility treatment, they have to they get you have to take blood thinners. Yeah. And I quite often got prescribed sildenafil. And I oh, really? go into the pharmacy and say sildenafil and all the men in the aisles ears would prick up and I'd say it's not you know it's not for it's, it's for something you know that very is funny isn't it very and then they say scientists yeah. warn men against starting to take them as a precautionary measure so it's like I'm just going to take some Viagra because I'm frightened I'm going to get Alzheimer's disease or it's you know, for research could be a bit for embarrassing research. yeah well if you see a lot of people queuing up for it now you'll know why <laughs> but listen thank you very much indeed uh, to you. Eve to Candice and to Ella uh, we'll see you again sh soon, I'm sure. Um, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thanks to all the guests that we had on tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night at 9pm, only right here on Talk TV. Good night. Hold up. 
the secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Malibu.com.